You can turn in your Bibles to Genesis 27, beginning in verse 41, or you can follow along in your bulletin as we focus primarily in chapter 28 this morning, that wonderful, thrilling, exciting, uh, mysterious passage known as Jacob's dream and the stairway to heaven. Let's look together, beginning in verse 41, Genesis 27, and extending to the end of Genesis 28. This is God's Word. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching, then I will kill my brother Jacob. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise and flee to Laban, my brother in Haran, and stay with him for a while, till your brother's fury turns away, till your brother's anger turns away from you, and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereft of you both in one day? Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him. You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Rise and go to Paddan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you, to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away. He went to Paddan Aram to Laban and the son of Bethuel, the Armean, and the brother of Rebekah, Jacob, and Esau's mother. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Paddan Aram and to take a wife from there, and that as he blessed him, he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women, and that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and gone to Paddan Aram. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife Besides the wives he had, Mahaloth, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth. Now Jacob left Beersheba and went towards Haran. He came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed and behold, there was a ladder or a stairway set up on the earth. And the top of it reached to heaven, and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. 
And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel. But the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. The grass withers. And the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we just heard a beautiful word from our sister Valencia a second ago. For the work that you are doing at GraceWorks here in Franklin, we are so grateful for her and so grateful for that ministry. And Lord, we pray that you would extend to her a great blessing as you will to all of us as we sit under the word this morning. We ask that you would open up our hearts to behold the wonderful things that you would have for us in this word. And we pray that you would bind the evil one and any distraction that would seek to grab our attention away from what you intend in this moment. And we pray that in all things, your glory would be foremost and the good of your people and the advance of your kingdom would be accomplished. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, maybe you were a curious child, a little bit like me when I was a kid. Maybe always imagining things, wondering, as I did in the woods behind my house, hoping that I would find in the little hole by the creek or in a turn in the woods some secret world, some imaginary and wonderful place where I could go to both escape and to enjoy the mesmerizing beauty and glory of a world that, in many ways, I kept in my own mind and hoped one day to stumble on in the world that I lived in. That little heart of a child that many of us have probably experienced is, well, is all throughout, of course, children's literature, whether it's looking at Alice and Alice in Wonderland going down the rabbit hole and through the tiny door into Wonderland or... Uh, whether it's at that platform of nine and three quarters in Harry Potter where you jump on the Hogwarts Express to be able to enter into another dimension that's entirely different from the one in which you're in or whether it's maybe most famously that magical wardrobe in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis as Lucy climbs into it in this fun hide-and-seek game only to find that those coats turn into fir trees and the wood bottom of the wardrobe turns into cold and white snow and she there under the glow of a lamppost in a beautiful place called Narnia. Uh, those are the stories of our childhood because in many ways those stories of childhood is the heart that I think many of us long for, to be as it were in a magical place, in a, in a new world, in a, in a world where there's enchantment, where there's wonder, where there's mystery, where there's adventure, and, and where so many of the things that are painful and hurtful even about this own life are in some way and mysteriously healed. 
When you look at those stories, and many more that we could cite, one of the things that you find is that each of those stories speak of another world where a person comes alive. And in their coming alive, they actually see the world in which they live differently than they would have understood it. They're amazed by it. They're explored new ideas and new concepts. Oh, I thought the world was like this, but obviously I was wrong. And in that mystery of a new world, we see that astonishment and that wonder begin to show up on their face as they try to understand what's happened in the newness of this place and the truer understandings of how to understand the world. It's what C.S. Lewis referred to as the deep magic. It's that world that stands behind this world and in some ways props up this world and is inside this world. It's that unseen world that's always there, that's moving about in this world and of which is actually truer and deeper than the things that we touch and taste and smell and see. The world of the soul and the world of the spirit. It's the recognition of that imaginary world Well, it's not imaginary. It's as real in this room as it's ever been. And it's real in the hearts and the lives of the people of God. I'd like to suggest that Father Jacob is passing through that kind of moment here in Genesis chapter 28. As he works through, as it were, a portal to another world, a door, as he refers to it, a gate... In verse 17, a gate into heaven itself where he learns that it's not so much another world as the world that he's always been in but the world that he's had a hard time seeing. And that now by seeing it, he awakens to that world and it changes him forever. Now to truly appreciate this reality in Jacob's life, we have to look at Genesis 28 In two different ways, I think, this morning. The first is recognizing that Jacob, as he enters in to Genesis chapter 28, was living in the darkness of a closed heaven world. He was living in the darkness of a closed heaven world. That's where he had been. But over the course of chapter 28, we see that he comes into the light of a heaven-opened world. He comes into the light of a heaven-opened world. In some ways, the scales, to use a New Testament image, falls from his eyes. A veil is dropped, and he can see things that he couldn't see previously, as he himself gives testimony to. Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And in many ways, it's the testimony maybe of your heart even in the moment as we sit here in this room that the Lord surely is in this place. But do you know it? Can you see it? Is your eyes open to the reality of the presence of the Lord even right now? Well, let's pursue that together as we look first at the darkness of this closed heaven world. You see, this is, this is why we started back in verse 41 of Genesis 27, because it's dark. As we enter into this story, we have Jacob, who's just come out of tricking and deceiving his own father into giving him a blessing. 
He's put on the skin, as it were, of Esau, those goat skins, and made himself feel hairy. He, he went in with that meal in order to manipulate deceitfully and get from his father that blessing, being led by his, his mother, Rebekah. What's fascinating about that is that he's actually pursuing the right thing. God had told him in Genesis chapter 25, God had told Rebekah and revealed it to Rebekah that, listen, the older son, Esau in this case, is actually going to serve the younger. That's the prophecy. That's the plan of God. That's what's going to unfold. But what we see is that they take the right thing and they pursue it in the wrong way. They pursue it by means of man's strength and wisdom. They manipulate, they lie, they're full of deceit and trickery in being able to get what it is that's there. They want to bring forth the promises of God in their own strength and with their own wisdom. Does this sound familiar? It should. You remember Abraham and Sarah? We were there not too long ago. They too were given a promise, a promise of a son. And as they were given that promise of a son, they anticipated it and expected it, and then four decades went by, and no son, until they came to the point that they decided, we're going to take matters into our own hands. We already know what it is that God has promised. There's this concubine, this maidservant named Hagar, and through their orchestrations, they don't produce the covenant child, the chosen one, Isaac. They produce what? Ishmael, the son of doubt. The son of their taking the promises and trying to make it fulfilled in their own power and in their own strength. Hasn't that been what we've seen with Rebecca and, and Jacob in the passage just previous to this? And now that they have seized upon the promise and they've gotten exactly what it is they've asked for, everything just seems to be falling into place, doesn't it? Nope. Not at all. Isn't it remarkable? Just think of the irony for a second. We've just heard of the lips of Isaac, the most soaring blessing that you can imagine being sung over Jacob. And then in the next verses, we read, Esau wants your head. There's a death threat. Wait, wait, he's going to live and prosper and the dew of heaven's going to fall on him and the fatness of the earth. Now he's got a death threat on him. And immediately, in a fear, Rebecca says, you got to get out of here. And he leaves, and, he, and he's wandering into the wilderness, and he's, he's falling asleep. And we're actually told in the midst of the text, aren't we, that as he's in the middle of nowhere, he comes to a certain place. That's the name of it in the text, a certain place, meaning he's nowhere. As he comes to nowhere, and as he has nothing, how do I know that? He's using a rock for a pillow. Everybody knows that you don't use a rock for a pillow unless you've got nothing to put your head on. A man who has got a death threat, he's a fugitive, now in exile, has left home with nothing, has lost his family. This is what it's like to be the blessed son of Isaac. Do you see what's happened? Immediately, through the manipulation, through the trickery, that the blessing is there, he has tried to orchestrate an end that he wanted to control. And what has happened is we have seen the darkness of him trying to live in a world where heaven and God himself is almost closed off to him. A heaven-closed world. And there's a bit of the, almost a literary beauty to the nature of it. As he goes into this certain place that's no place, we're told the sun sets on him. The sun sets on him. It tells us that it gets dark. 
Just as the darkness of Jacob's own heart and the darkness of his own manipulations and trickery and the darkness of a moment where his life is on the line, where he's lost his family and his home, where he's wandering towards a place that he's never been, in that moment, what happens? Darkness falls. As he's in the midst of darkness, darkness falls. It's like a double darkness. And it's a reminder of the fact that this is a man who has tried to accomplish his life and even the promises of God in his own power. Where do I get that? Well, let me just encourage you to think back. We've been in the story of Jacob for the last several weeks. We've been following him. Do you remember him once praying? Do you remember him once rehearsing or thinking about the promises of God? Do you remember him once seeking wisdom for how he could honor the Lord and do what is faithful and what the Lord would call him to do? You having a hard time? It's not there. He didn't do any of those things. He's lived in a closed heaven world. He's lived in a place where if he's going to get what it is that he has come to get and what God has said he is rightfully to get, he's going to have to get it on his own. He's going to have to get it in his own way. He's going to have to go about it in his own way. He's going to have to muster it up with his own strength. And isn't it fascinating as he gave no thought to heaven, now heaven has darkened over him. And he sits there with a stone underneath his head, probably in a moment of great despair and discouragement. And it's in that moment... That he moves from the darkness of a heaven-closed world into the light of a heaven-opened world. You see, this is the beauty of God's grace. Some of us think in here, and it's our tendency, isn't it? It's our tendency to think, listen, I'm going to clean up my act. I'm going to have a better week this next week than I had this last week. I'm not going to kick the dog. I'm I'm not going to spout off at that employee at work. I'm not, going to, I'm not going to think those lustful thoughts. I'm not going to, I'm not going to act passive aggressive like I normally do with my spouse. I'm going to, it's going to be different this next week. And then I know I'm going to receive from God grace and a blessing. Then I know he'll come to me. It's, it's, it's as if we think that as long as we clean up our act and when we clean up our act, then God in some way will come and meet us. But notice, has Jacob done any cleaning up? None at all. He's at the lowest point of his life. This man has been an utter mess from the very beginning. Yes, God has set his love upon him. Yes, God has chosen him. We've already heard that from the pages of Scripture. But God comes to him now in the moment of his darkness, in the moment of his despair, in the moment of his need. And isn't it quite remarkable? How does he come to him? He comes to him when he's asleep. You know, that is when we find Jacob at his best. When he is sound asleep. When, he's, when his mind has is, is been given over to the Lord and he's not moving and he's not acting. That's when we find Jacob at his best. God comes to him and breaks into his world at a point where he is immobile, vulnerable, weak. God breaks into his world and awakens him. Think of it. Think of the irony. He awakens him in the midst of his sleep. He opens up his mind and his heart to the heaven-opened world in the midst of a moment where he is sound asleep. 
Friends, sometimes the Lord does his best work in our lives when we are hitting the pillow. Sometimes the best thing that you can do is to not do anything more but to go to bed and to give yourself over to the Lord. You know, it's part of the remarkable realities of the way that God has made us that we need hours of the day where we are doing nothing in order to recharge, to be able to do anything the next day. Sometimes the greatest work happens. Sometimes the greatest burdens are relieved. Sometimes the greatest peace is dispensed when you ain't doing a thing. And God in his kindness comes to you. And he begins to do work when you're not working. That's exactly what we see here. And in the moment of that opening of heaven... Happening for Jacob, we're, we're told that he saw things and we're told that he heard things. And the, the seeing is what comes to our hearts and it comes to our minds because it's a spectacle. It says, behold, three different times in the text in verses 12 to 13. He beholds three things. He beholds a stairway, he beholds angels, and he beholds the Lord. He, he beholds those three things. Now, if you look at the translation just by way of note, because I think this can trip you up a little bit. In verse 12, as he's dreaming, we're told that, behold, he sees a ladder. Now, a ladder is a possible translation, and it is the classic translation. If you go back through, particularly the English translations back to the King James Version, you'll see the language of, of ladder. And in fact, most of us were probably raised thinking about Jacob's ladder. It almost got a mythology about it now in the way that we remember it. But it's a better understanding that what we have here is a staircase, a flight of stairs. Now, a part of this is just the vision itself. I want you to imagine a ladder where angels and, and, and archangels and others are coming up and down the ladder. No, it's not typically like that. It's a staircase. And you'll see in the imagery that it's a flight of stairs that he is taking up because the picture that we actually have here is of an old temple. It's the old ziggurat temple. That's the picture that's being given here. The old three-pyramid-shaped temple of ancient Mesopotamia that on one side of it didn't have a ladder it had a staircase it had a place where the worshiper was supposed to walk all the way up to the top and do what sacrifice to the Lord that's the vision that's really being given to, to Jacob here now how do I know that well because of what he says he says after he wakes up from the dream that he has found, as it were, the Lord in this place. And what does he refer to this place? He refers to it as Bethel, the house of God, or a temple. He's using the language of temple. And then he calls it what? The gate, a portal, a gate of heaven. Well, now where else have we heard that language? Well, only one other place. You know where it was? Genesis chapter 11. You know the story? The Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel. Did you know that the word Babel in the ancient Near Eastern world actually means the gate of heaven or the gate of God? That's its term. We think of it as confusing. It's, it's Babel. It's confusing. Well, if you actually look at the gloss, probably if you've got a decent 
um, Old Testament translation and you look at the gloss in your study Bible, you'll see that the word Babel doesn't mean confusion. It actually sounds like the word confusion. That's why it was termed Babel. But in fact, Babylon, or Babel as it's later used and utilized, is a kingdom that associates itself with being in union with or a gateway to God himself. By using the language of the gate of heaven, he's referring back to Genesis chapter 11 and the story of the Tower of Babel, and he's telling us what it is he saw. He saw something like a ziggurat, something like an old temple in the midst of this vision, and he saw in the staircase not worshipers going up and worshipers coming down, which would have been the means of ancient Mesopotamian and Near Eastern culture in terms of worship. Not worshipers going up and down. Who's coming up and down? Angels are. Now, this is really why I titled this particular section, The Light of the Heaven-Opened World. What's all that mean? What is the angels ascending and descending supposed to tell us? Well, what did we say had been Jacob's M.O. from the very beginning? His M.O. was to live life as if essentially heaven shut and God's disinterested. It's really up to him to get the job done. That's essentially how Jacob has lived. Do you know what his vision is about? A tower that reaches into the heavens, which is exactly what the Tower of Babel was supposed to do. And it comes all the way to earth. And what's coming to earth and what's returning to heaven? But God's angels, his messengers. What what do they do? God's bidding. What are the angels descending coming to do? They're on God's mission to accomplish his purposes in the world. What are the angels ascending doing? They're headed back to heaven because they've accomplished their mission. It's a picture of heaven coming down to earth. It's a picture of the intervention of God himself breaking into existence. Jacob had been living as if it was all up to him to accomplish things. God is telling him, I've been accomplishing my purposes all along. I know you couldn't see it. I know you think it was your great thought and your great wisdom and your great actions that are really moving along things in life. But let me tell you, I've got my heavenly host doing my bidding all over the place. You may not see them, but they're there. That heaven has opened up and heaven is coming down. It's an incredible picture. He's teaching Jacob the lesson that so many of us fail to learn, isn't it? When we get to the stuck places in our life, when we get to the challenges in our life, and we find ourselves in the middle of a wilderness and we're looking for a rock to put our head on to go to sleep. When we get to that place in our lives and we think, I've got to somehow crawl my way out of this, God is saying to you, listen, I'm sending my heavenly host. They're accomplishing my purposes. They're doing my bidding. This may look like a royal mistake to you, but I can assure you I've got this well in control. And actually, the more that you do, the more that you just mess it up. The more that I do, I'm accomplishing my purposes and sending my angels, my ungloss, my messengers, my ambassadors, my witness bearers of the mission in the kingdom that I have sent them on. I think it's even deeper than that. It's at least that, though, isn't it? 
as these angels coming down to earth and these angels leaving the earth, going back to heaven, accomplishing their missions and being sent on missions. Do you know what we actually read? Notice there in verse 12, actually verse 13. The third thing he sees is not merely the angels, not merely the stairway, but he sees the Lord. And notice the way it's written. And behold, the Lord stood above it. Above what? Well, presumably, in the translation, presumably the the stairway. He's standing at at the top of of the stairway. And that is one potential rendering of it. If you've got your Bible open, you might notice, right? There's a little... There's a little word by it or a little asterisk by it or a little number by it. If you trace it down to the bottom, it's actually two possible readings. That he's above it or he's beside it or he's beside him. It can be read either way. Uh, All would be faithful ways. And scholars are divided. Uh, They're divided on what it means. Does this mean that he sees the Lord high and lifted up at the top of the staircase As the angels are coming down and coming back to him, is he, as it were, the mission giver who's accomplishing his purposes? Or is it saying this, and behold, the Lord stood beside him? Beside who? Jacob. Is it it a picture, rather, of God having come down and standing right beside Jacob? That he's descended the staircase. Not just the angels. But that the Lord himself. The covenant name that's given here. You see the capital letters Lord. That's the covenant name. Yahweh. This this is the Lord. Has he come down and been beside Jacob? Is that the picture? Is this the picture of a child that's asleep on the ground with his head on a rock and the Lord... Yahweh himself is standing beside him like a father watching his child sleep. Is that the picture of the text? I'd like to argue that it is. Not every scholar would agree with me, but I'd like to argue that it is. And I'll tell you why for a textual reason. If you look at verses 14 and 15, you see what? The promises of Abraham reiterated. But what is the richness of the promise, the depth of the promise? It's one of the strongest we see in the whole of the Old Testament. It's verse 15. Listen to verse 15. Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever it is that you will go. I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Now, I just can't help. I can't help but read the debate about verse 13 and look at the promise of verse 15 and think, Boy, it sure would seem likely that he would be standing right beside Jacob as he teaches Jacob that very truth that he's always beside him. But whether that's the case or not, the promise is still the same. And, And notice the nature of the promise. Presence. And from what we can tell from the text, Jacob is completely alone. There's no mention of people with him, except for God. Protection. I will keep you wherever it is you go. Does he need protection? He has a death threat on his head. He could be falling asleep wondering if Esau is following him in the night. I will keep you. I've already 
suggested they didn't have a whole lot of things. Because you just don't put your head under a pillow if you've got some extra clothes that you could use just as faithful with a pillow. He didn't have many provisions, but God's going to keep him. And what has he just lost? He's lost this place. But what's God going to do? He's going to bring him back to the land. He's going to bring him back to the land from the fa- his father's land. And he's going to be with him until the end. Until the moment where all of these things are accomplished. Do you see what it is that God is doing here? God is teaching Jacob the nature of his promises, the nature of his character, and the power of what it means to live in a heaven-opened world. In a world where you're not acting like you're alone and all the resources of life are all what you can taste, feel, touch, hear, and experience, but that there's an unseen world of which is always present and of which God promises to be with you and always take care of you and protect you. He's teaching him that God is the one who comes down and takes care of his people. And he's teaching him the real nature of what communion with God looks like. Friends, if you look at ancient ziggurats and you look at the traditions of Near Eastern cultures and their religious rituals and cultic practices, the ziggurat was used as a temple, a dwelling house of God, in which you took your sacrifice as high as you possibly could, scraping heaven, as it were, to get as close to God as you possibly could, in order that he might see your sacrifice and be pleased with you and let you, as it were, accept you into his heaven. It, it, was, a, it was an edifice, it was a temple that was all about man climbing the steps to God. Do you see what God has done here? He's given Jacob the exact picture of what the whole culture around him would think of as walking their way or earning, or as we might use the phrase, climbing the ladder. Climbing the ladder, as it were, to God. He's taken the exact image and he's turned it on its head. And he says, you know what the, you know what the stairway is about? It's not about you climbing to heaven. It's about God getting to you. It's about God getting to you. Jacob, for goodness sakes, is asleep when this happens. He's not walking. He's not talking. He's not acting. It is God who has turned, as it were, the ziggurat on its head. And he has turned what man had used as a means by which to climb to God. God has now built a stairway in which he's going to climb to man. Now, we know that this is the case because we know the story of the gospel. We know that every page of the scripture and every story in the scripture is unfolding in some way, shape, or form the reality of the gospel. And we know that at the heart of the gospel is not the actions of man that make us pleasing to the Lord, but it's the actions of God on the behalf of man that make us pleasing to the Lord. It's not our journey to heaven, but it's heaven's journey to us. That's what the Bible's about. That's what the Bible's about. You know, you even pray it. You pray it every week. Have you been paying attention to it? It's in the Lord's Prayer. That heaven would be as it is on 
or as earth as it is in heaven, right? That's what we're praying for heaven to come down. We're, we're praying because we've already had heaven come down. We, we've already had, you see, the Lord come down. We've already had the Lord stand beside us, sleeping with our heads on a rock. We've already been there. We've been there when we look at the pages of the scripture and the unfolding of the story of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm saying that because Jesus said it. I'm not making this up. John chapter 1. It's one of the most beautiful passages. One day I hope to, one day I hope to preach it. John 1, verse 43, extending to verse 51. It's the story of Nathaniel. Philip has met Jesus and he's been overwhelmed at the glory of Jesus, that he is the Messiah, the, the one who the Old Testament prophets have told us to be looking for. Philip's so excited, so what does he do? He tells Nathaniel, Nathaniel, you got to come see this guy. And Nathaniel's like, what? Really? This is the Messiah? And he tells him, hey, he's come out of Nazareth. Nazareth? What no name? What no name place like Nazareth would ever have anything good come out of it? Oh, okay, all right. Well, I'll, I'll go. I'll go with you. And and Philip brings Nathaniel. And as soon as Jesus sees Nathaniel, he says, "Here is an Israelite in whom there's no guile in his mouth." Huh. And Nathaniel says to him, "But well, how do you how do you know me? How do you know me?" And and Nathaniel. And Nathaniel then is overwhelmed by Jesus because Jesus said, because I saw you when you were under that fig tree. What? You, you saw me when I was under the fig tree? And we as the readers are looking at it and we're thinking to ourselves, what happened under the fig tree? Like, I, I don't know what happened under the, under the fig tree. We still don't know what happened under the fig tree. We have no idea what Jesus is even referring to, but it meant something to Nathaniel. Because he was bowled over by the fact that you knew what was going on underneath the fig tree. Now, I don't know what was going on underneath the fig tree, but whatever it was... Nathaniel is totally shocked by it. And Jesus says, are you surprised that I know what was going on with you underneath the fig tree? If you follow me, you'll see greater things than this. In fact, verse 51, you'll see this. Truly I say to you, you'll see the heavens opened up. And you'll see the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. That's what you're going to see. Well, now, if you know a little bit about your Old Testament, you think, I've seen that somewhere before. I've seen that somewhere before. This heaven opening up, this angels ascending and descending, except in this case, it says that they're doing so on who? On Jesus. That he has come to the bottom of the staircase. You see, that's why I take that interpretation. But I couldn't tell you too early in the sermon. That's why I take that interpretation. Of course the Lord was at the bottom with Jacob. Why? Because he's at the bottom of the staircase with you too. He's come here. He's come here to a no-name place. To people with a death threat on their heads. Genuinely. For the wages of sin is What? Death. He's come to a people with a death threat on their heads. A people who've lost their family, who've lost their home, who have been groping for real family and real home ever since the Garden of Eden. And have tried to make it here in gated communities and big homes and rich salaries, and it hadn't worked. 
They're still as lonely and desperate, sleeping with a pillow under the rock as anybody else is. And God has come to the bottom of the staircase, and he has said, through me, I have become the sacrifice at the top of the ziggurat who is pleasing to the Father that has opened up a pathway for me to be at the bottom of the staircase walking with you wherever it is that you would go. Why is it that Jesus would say something like that if he didn't mean it in the end of Matthew 28? When he tells us to go into all the world, make disciples, teaching them and baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, for lo, I am with you. How? Always. Even to the end of the age. Do you see? That's what God's always doing. And it's why 1 Timothy 2.5 is truer now than it's ever been. There is one God and there is one mediator between God and man. It is the man, Jesus Christ. You see, friends, Jesus is our stairway to heaven because Jesus is our stairway from heaven. We get to the top of the staircase because Jesus came to the bottom of the staircase. Did you think you were going to climb the staircase? No, you can't climb the staircase. But Jesus has come down to the bottom of the staircase to carry you to the top. To carry you to the top of the staircase. He is going to prepare a place for you. And he will come back down the staircase. And one day, by God's grace soon, he'll take you to live at home with him. And you'll know the gate of heaven as the house of God in a whole new and fantastic way. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. Father in heaven, work this truth into our hearts. And begin to give us the sight of a heaven-opened world. Begin to give us the light that comes from knowing that you're right beside us. And that we don't have to make your kingdom come. Your kingdom will come. And you will accomplish your purposes. We're just pleased that you'd like to use us and astonished that you do. And so, Father, as we come to you in this moment, praying back to you, the truths and the realities that we've just learned, as we pray together, we would ask that you would work these realities into our lives. Father God, your steadfast love is better than life. And we pray that you would be our God and cause us to earnestly seek you and to thirst for you.